A warm servus from Munich, and welcome everyone to the High Tech Ventures podcast. Our mission at High Tech Ventures is to help turn science into a triple P dividend. After decades of focus on purely digital innovations, the wave of science-backed ventures is inevitably coming. And in order to tackle many of the world's most pressing challenges, these high-tech innovations are also highly needed. The High Tech Ventures podcast gives you the inside look at what it takes to create successful science-backed ventures. We truly want to understand the entire process from lab to IPO and hone in on the people involved. Entrepreneurs, tech transfer specialists, scientists or investors. Most of them working backstage relentlessly. We will talk to those getting their hands dirty, those who don't shy away from the complexity, but see the opportunity to create lasting impact based on the newest advances in science and technology. My name is Annalena Schindel, and I'm pleased to be your host for this episode today. My guest today is Paolo Markisch, um, CTO and co-founder of Feedzai. Welcome, Paolo. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's it's great to have you here. Um, let me say a word or two about Feedzai before we before we dive in. Um, Feedzai, as far as I understand, is Portugal's youngest unicorn. Uh, you just raised a Series D of two hundred million in in April, bringing up the valuation. Um, maybe a, a sentence or two also about what you do. I think Feedzai, as I understand it, is one of these technologies that we all probably interact with on a, on a near daily basis, but we don't actually see or feel. And that's, that's a good thing as long as we yeah. don't feel it. <laughs> so every time someone opens a bank account, transfers money, makes a payment with your mobile device, feeds this platform in like three milliseconds, probably less actually scores those transactions and makes sure to prevent fraud, money laundering, any kind of financial crime. Exactly. Is that correct? We, we are like the, invisible angels that are protecting all these money flows between people and uh, we make sure that your money is not being stolen or that people are not doing money laundering between different accounts or banks or institutions and uh, it's a system that every single bank worldwide needs to have and uh, and we are one of the main providers worldwide of of that technology Very, very cool. And I, I want to talk about that that path to becoming that, that go-to player over the past 10 years. Um, but I'd first like to take a step back and actually get to know you, Paolo, um, sort of starting in the beginning with you kicking off university, um, studying informatics, engineering, computer science. Um, maybe you can take us there. Like, why computer science? What, what interested you? Why did you get started <laughs> on that path? So, so... I always loved computers and programming. And the, the thing that for me it was most amazing uh, since the beginning was that just by writing this piece of code, you could create these virtual worlds and you could simulate uh, different ideas and see the, the outcomes. So I remember back in the day, uh, imagine when people were uh, teaching you about the atom I would actually write the equations and then uh, program them in the computer and actually see the thing happening. So while many courses and disciplines in high school were theoretical, I could actually make all that a reality. I could build 3D objects. I could simulate and create new worlds uh, inside of a computer. And uh, and that was why I decided later on to, to study computer science. Uh, it's an amazing field. So you'd already taught yourself, basically. It was not really part of education, but it was something self-taught to yeah. sort of help you explain a lot of other things that you learned. Yeah, so so what happened was... <laughs> so my, my brother is uh, way older. He's uh, eight years older than me. And he also studied computer science. So while he was at university, he would say, oh, do you want to learn how to uh, program a computer? And I would say, yeah, sure. And he would not teach me, but he would give me the same book that he was using at university. And I would read it by myself. And I, I would not understand a lot of what was written, but I would try it. And the computers are really this amazing thing where you can try out uh, stuff and if it doesn't work it doesn't work but when it works it's amazing 
and uh, throughout his degree i was doing the same degree like in in the shadows learning about electronics so he would not teach me electronics but he would give me the book and then i would go to the to the store and buy these components and i would uh, i would build stuff myself based on the books that he was studying uh, at university uh, i think it's a great way to to learn uh, so it's almost like I did the degree, the degree eight years uh, before while at uh, at high school. De- definitely, but but you still decided to do it again officially then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you, you always learn. <laughs> and then I see you took like lots of different interesting routes. You went to Edinburgh European Space Agency. So you started your own first company already in in parallel to to the research and the, and, and the mm-hmm. studying. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about that. Like, was this part of the exploration? Was it all following a plan of where, where you wanted to get? Or uh, what, what so, motivated you? I think there are, uh, and I'm going to overly simplify this, but I see two different types of people in general. You have people that start one thing and they want to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and then keep on that uh, field uh, and uh, to give you an example, my co-founder Pedro, one of my co-founders, he did his PhD in uh, in databases and streaming engines. And when he finished his PhD, he wanted to go even deeper and start a research group on that and and so on. And I'm exactly the the opposite. So I, I feel that within my life, I need to live different lives. So when I finished my, my PhD, I was completely sick of the topic and I wanted to do something else. And and that was throughout uh, all of my life. So uh, as you were saying, I when I was in the, the first year of the university, I went knock, knocking on some doors and I got uh, an assignment on a physics lab and I was doing electronics for nuclear instrumentation and uh, on the third year i went to edinburgh and i was uh, working on the biggest parallel computer in europe which is a completely different area and then i was working on uh, database systems in germany in the in my fifth year so every time there was an opportunity to do something different i i would be the first one to to volunteer and to do it. And uh, I ended up uh, teaching uh, at Carnegie Mellon in the United States, but also in uh, Eastern Europe. I ended up going every year to Africa to teach. I helped setting up the computer science degree in East Timor, close to Australia. Every time an opportunity came, (laughs) I always volunteered to to do that. And... um, People are different. So some people want to go deeper. Some people like to live different lives within uh, their lives. I'm a little bit like that. Yeah, and you already mentioned mentioned your co-founder. It might also be good to have that exact opposite to to work together. We can yeah. <laughs> we can talk more about that in a bit. Um, but you but you still went down the, the like the route of becoming a professor. Mm-hmm. Was that? Like, how did that come about? What what motivated you to become a professor? Because it sounds like after the PhD, you actually wanted, like, it, it doesn't sound like you wanted to stick in the field and sort of <laughs> do so, even, so, even more of that. So I always loved teaching. Even today, one of the things uh, that I do is that every time there is the, the opportunity to go to universities and teach uh, a few classes and so on, I always do it. Uh, because I think, Teaching also helps you think about things deeply. I think you only really learn something for real when you you have to explain it or to teach it to, to someone else. And uh, and that's something that that I really love. And uh, when uh, when I finished my PhD, it was not... Uh, so doing a PhD, typically you also serve as a TA and you need to, to teach a few courses and I did that. That part I always loved, but uh, I didn't see myself going even deeper on a specific topic. I wanted to 
to learn a lot more about a lot more different things. So I actually was looking around when I, I finished the PhD. So on one hand, I applied to become a, a professor at the University of Coimbra. On the other hand, I wanted to spend some time uh, somewhere. And uh, I reached out to, to Nuno. Uh, so Nuno is the, the third co-founder. Uh, and he was working at the European Space Agency. Uh, they were having some um, uh, challenges in uh, some technologies that I knew very well because of my PhD and my research. So I ended up going to the European Space Agency for, for a while. And uh, it was uh, really amazing because uh, most people that are there really believe in space exploration and uh, that it's really important for mankind. Uh, so I spent some time with them, helped with uh, a number of uh, projects. And uh, it was so good that when I came back to the university and I got the position as uh, a professor, uh, they grant me a, a five-year contract uh, to support them in terms of tough problems that, that they had. So every time they had uh, complicated problems or things that they need to, to be explored, uh, they would actually assign that to, to my group. And then uh, I had an amazing team of researchers and students and uh, uh, PhD candidates that would work on those uh, on those projects. Uh, so it was a win-win a situation to, to everyone. I was going to say, best of both worlds, maybe. So you yeah. you can still do the teaching. You love that. You had your professor position, Coimbra, um, Carnegie Mellon, I understand as well. And then sort of the industry projects as you yes. <laughs> as you wanted or like other problems to explore. Um, sounds like sounds like the, the perfect position to be in. Why start a company then? <laughs> what, what happened? <laughs> so, Why did you leave that? <laughs> so... So what happened was that, uh, so this is actually my second company. And uh, before I had started the, a company with, uh, with a few co-founders, uh, that it was mostly a services company, which is a completely different model. And Nunu, uh, my co-founder at, at the European Space Agency, also had started a company, which was a service company. And uh, we both exited our companies before because we understood that although economically it was good and we had good teams and so on, we wanted to build product companies. And building a product company is, is really almost a, an unfair advantage because if you have a product, it's exactly the same product that you can sell 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times. So you get amazing economies of scale. Uh, so in 2008, uh, I actually met with, with Nuno uh, in London. So he was finishing his MBA at London Business School. And we discussed uh, starting a product company. And uh, at that time, I had been a, a professor for about 10 years. So <laughs> I, I needed a, a little bit of a change. And, uh, and we decided to, to pursue that. One interesting aspect is that we had very good uh, technology and understanding of how to solve certain problems in machine learning and uh, big data processing, because that's what we were doing at the university. But we didn't have a, a product per se. Uh, and um, that led us to, to a discussion where we knew that we didn't have a product market fit because we didn't even have a product. This is a mistake that many people uh, make, which is they believe that because they have a technology, that means people are going to buy or that's a product. That's completely wrong. Having product market fit is having something that is solving a real business problem that is worth a lot of money for someone. And uh, what we decided to do was to create the company, but we would do a number of experiments. And by experiments, I mean we were going to explore three different verticals, uh, and the verticals were telecommunications, 
financial services and utilities. All these sectors need to process large volumes of data and have intelligence built in. And, and we would try to find that product market fit. We would try to convert this amazing technology that we had into something that someone wanted to buy. And, uh, and that's how the, the company started. So uh, we, we put a little bit of money in the company. We got some public funding uh, also. And uh, in 2009, we started to, to hire the, the first employees. Um, and that's how it it began. How did you go about finding the the very first companies, so customers? So I understand you said so, like okay, we our technology can work with large vol volumes of data. There's three verticals we see where like people need or processing yeah. lots of data. N now, how do you start? Because you don't have a product to sell, like um, yeah, you, you this is a young company. <laughs> so so as I was telling before. One of the things that worked very well is that I never said no to opportunities. And uh, Nunu is a little bit like that also. So we had a lot of connections and people that knew us uh, in industry and were willing to, to listen and to, to take a bet. So when we started uh, product development, we had all these people that we could call and explain what we were doing and if it would be applicable or not. Uh, and also remember that throughout the years, there were many students that eventually became uh, managers and executives in a lot of different places. So our network was very, very good. Uh, not to sell, because in the beginning, you are not yet selling, but to, to do these experiments. And uh, that's how we started. We basically reached out to, to our network we heard uh, a lot of no's and that's perfectly fine and that's actually desirable. But some of them, uh, where the technology had potential and they said yes and they they accepted it to, to try it out. And that's how we got the, the first clients. Um, yeah. How did you go about those experiments? Like, was it more... <laughs> more researchy than that so did you have clear metrics and was like okay if like do we need a certain number of people in that field to like say this it, it makes sense we do more of this or or we stop this like how or or just say so, whoever it, says yes we work with and then it was not uh, that scientific so the the basic criteria was um is this tech is this a technology that can bring a real added benefit to this market. So to give you an example, we were applying the technology to monitor all the ATMs, all the cash machines of a country and all the transactions taking place. And uh, if part of the network was down, we could immediately say it's down. And we could even pre predict that a certain part of the network Uh, was going down in a, in a few minutes or in a, in an hour or so. So there was value in that. We had uh, a client Intel in, um, in uh, utilities, uh, an electricity company, that was using the product to monitor all the transmission lines and all the voltages and, uh, and currents going on in the country and try to uh, predict if the network was going down in a certain area or not. I still call those experiments because although they were paying good money, the business case is not very clear. So you don't know how much you can charge for the product and they don't know how much they should pay for the product, right? How, how can you actually calculate the return of investment on monitoring an ATM network? It's really, really hard. And the, the tipping point for us, uh, and we did this for, I don't know, probably three years. The tipping point for us when we found product market fit was when one of our clients, he was very, very happy with the, with the product. And he asked us to apply it, to try to apply it to fraud prevention, to detect fraud. So it's not even an application that had occurred to us before. And uh, we said, 
yes, if you if you want us to do that and uh, you are you are willing to pay, why not? And we we did apply it, and the results were aston astonish astonishing. And uh, that's when we understood that we had product market fit because when the the commercial discussion started, the amount that they were willing to pay was basically. I don't remember the exact value, but it was something like 20 or 30 times, three zero, the amount that they were paying before for the normal use case. And um, the fact is, any financial institution knows how much fraud they have, how much money they are losing for the, the organized crime. Uh, if you are a, a public company, you even have to report it on your accounts. Uh, so even today we go to to the client's accounts because they are public if they are a public company and we see how much they are losing in fraud and it's typically in the millions. And based on that, you can actually calculate what's the added value that you have for the, the client. And uh, we understood that we had product market fit because it was exactly the same technology, the same thing, but... People were willing to pay you 30 times more for the technology. And, uh, and the business case was very, very obvious. And uh, what we did at the time was, and this was a tough decision, we decided to sunset all the other clients because although they were paying good money, it was a distraction. And if you want to become the world leader in a certain area, you need to focus. And sometimes... Paying clients can be a, a, a distraction if they are not aligned with what you want to do. So we decided to, to sunset uh, the other clients and focus everything on the on fraud prevention. And that's that's how we became um, this company. So three years in, you're you're running all these experiments still in, in, in different fields, and then one one company says, "Look, fraud would be a really interesting case." You exactly. and you figure out together with them that this is a actually interesting as a product because it probably can can easily be adapted to to a second client. It's not like a service business where you start from mm -hmm. scratch. And then on the other hand, it's it's actually economically viable. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you still it, have yeah. it, it's still very hard because. One thing is to to say that oh uh, there's product market fit there and there is value. Another thing is then to develop a specific product for that. It's to convince a lot of clients to actually buy that product. It's to do market expansion. So all the execution that you need to to do and to have excellence in execution to grow a company and be able to do all that. That's what counts uh, the most afterwards because there is a lot of ideas and people are with ideas, but ideas by themselves or technology by them by itself, uh, it's not worth a lot or, or anything. After you you have that, what you then need to have is execution. And so it's still hard uh, at that point. So I see sort of you as a founding team making that decision. Um, I understand sort of you, you seeing that signal and saying like, let, let's let's go for that. Um, but you just said you still had paying customers. You have a team sort of set up to to serve all those customers. They're not set up for like execution in, in fraud. Um, probably that's also not what your investors, if you had any at that point in time, were, were sort of uh, interested in. Like, how did you convince yourself, your employees, your team, your investors, and everyone that this is now the right direction, that like this is full speed in that direction so, and stop everything else, although they're paying. So it's really a tough decision because you may be jeopardizing everything that you have accomplished in the, in the last few years. But uh, the fact is, when, when you look at the revenue and the expansion that you were having, and you see what uh, what you actually want to become, the two things don't align, right? So with the type of uh, customer acquisition that we were having and how dispersed we were, we would not, never become a, a billion-dollar company, which was kind of the, of the objective. So the other thing that helps was that 
it was very, very clear in the beginning that this first stage was experiments to try to find product market fit. So we never told uh, the investors that we had that that was it. We actually explained, and it was very clear that the technology was amazing, but you still needed to, to basically create that product that would, uh, that would sell in the market. And so when the time came, then we had to, to really explain in detail and carefully to the, to the team. And we had to, to do the same with the, with the investors. And uh, I think everyone was very supportive because, again, the, the operating system to do that and the, the type of execution that we were doing had been explained. So it was not a, a surprise per se. How has it changed? How did it develop from that decision on? So the the then what you need to to do is basically execute on product, and uh, it's harder to to do than it seems because we didn't have any knowledge in banking systems or payment networks and so on and so forth. So we knew technology, we didn't know uh, banking, uh, so we had to hire people that actually knew about these topics and subject matter experts and so on and so forth, uh, because the product cannot be a, just a real-time processing engine. It needs to be a, a, a platform to, to fight fraud, which is a, a completely different thing. And also on the sales side, you need to do the, the same, because one thing is to uh, being selling a generic platform. Another thing is to hire uh, basically sales execs to to sell to banking and to to financial institutions same thing happens with marketing so this this type of decision actually affects all the departments of a company even if it's a it's a small company and uh, so the the next step besides these factors which are more internal about team and product execution and so on is then to, to find relevant customers. And the, there is this book that I love called The, the Tipping Point, uh, where they explain this, I think, very, very well. The first clients that you need to find are the ones that have the same vision and the same belief that, that you have. They are the influencers. So you need to find these special clients that want to do things in a different way. I remember back in the day uh, when we were answering requests for proposals, everyone in banking that were fighting fraud, they wanted to have what's called rules engines where you say, oh, if I see this transaction and that type of transaction, this is probably fraud. And our proposition was completely different. We were saying the computer using machine learning and AI, it will flag the transactions. You don't need to write rules. And uh, you really need to have a special type of client that believes in you in that different way of doing things. And uh, we have that client in the United States. And uh, the guy that bought from us, it was a very large institution. He, he actually told us, I'm going to put my career on the line because... If this works, I'm going to be hero inside of my company. If this fails, I'm going to to be fired. So I'm putting a lot of faith in you, and I'm actually putting your my career on on your hands. Please don't uh, don't disappoint me. And we we executed like crazy to to make that that company and that person in particular successful. And that's what we did with the, with the first clients. So we found the influencers, the companies that fought in a different way, that wanted to do things in a different way, and uh, and they became successful using this approach. Uh, by the way, this is also a lesson because then when you are in a growth stage, which is our stage, the ones that are going to buy from you are typically the ones that want to be as successful and uh, they want to follow the the influencers. It's a little bit like in the 
in the social networks. So they are buying not so much because they they have a different vision of the world, but because you made someone else successful and they want you to to make them successful. So it's a different type of uh, of sales proposition. And, and different types of people probably you also need in, in the yeah. company now. Um, but I, I like that. So, you, so you're out sort of in the world trying to find the ones that share the vision that are sort of want to be the influencers, want to try something different. Where did you find them? You already mentioned the US. Um, I understand like Portugal was too small, probably really early on for you as a company. Like how was that also in, in different cultures, continents, etc.? Where did you find the influencers? Like where are they? Sure. So I can tell you that the the first VC money that we raised at the company, it was specifically uh, for going into the US and start a, a, a team there because so so I've lived in, in many different places, different continents with different people. But there is one thing that I really love about the, the United States. They are very blunt on their beliefs. So if they like what they see, they will tell you that they like and they want to to act immediately. If it's to buy something, they will uh, move wherever needs to be moved to, to make that purchase. If they don't like what they see, they tell you that they don't like and why they don't like it. So they are very pragmatic in that regard. And they don't really care where you come from or what's your background or nationality or... Uh, or gender or group, they they if the tech is good and if you prove that you can bring results, basically they move forward and they are very fast on acting. So for us, we we knew that the best market, probably one of the best markets to be in, would be the US to to start with because of the velocity, because of not caring about uh, nationalities or uh, where you are and so on. In Europe, uh, we actually tried to do a little bit of sales in Europe in the beginning. It's a lot harder for a startup company because in general, it's very regional. So uh, companies in France tend to, tend to buy from French companies. Companies in Germany tend to buy from uh, German companies. Uh, companies in the UK, the same thing. So it's possible to sell and it's possible to to do that path, but it's a lot, a lot slower. And uh, if you have VC money, VC money is a little bit like rocket fuel. It's all about speed and execution. So uh, <laughs> if, uh, if you have VC money, basically... Everyone is expecting you to execute at 10 times the speed and at very high standards, at 10 times or 100 times the the standard that you were executing before. And uh, that's why we started with, uh, with the US. So all the, the product development engi- engineering was done uh, from Portugal at the time. But uh, the market that we were focusing on, it was the, the U.S. market. How has that developed until now? Now that you're not just no, looking for yeah. the influencers, I mean, you're looking for yeah. the, for the so, followers. <laughs> so so now, now we are a, a worldwide player. So we have offices in nine uh, different locations. So the United States, we have three offices. We are in the, we have an office in the U.K. We have an office in, Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia. We have people in uh, Germany, in France, in uh, in a lot of these places. Because again, if you want to to become the world leader in this area, which is our objective, uh, we want to be the the cloud platform to to manage the risk. Uh, you actually need to think worldwide and that's the the expansion phase that we started two years ago uh, successful and now we have clients all over the world um, and and what are the next steps from there so so the the next steps is right now we focus a lot in two different 
areas in uh, for financial institutions, which is fraud prevention on one side and anti-money laundering on the other side. So those are the, the two main markets. But if you look at a, a financial institution and managing risk, that's a lot more than just preventing fraud or preventing money laundering. So uh, you have things like uh, the prevent phase. So when you detect, it's like the transactions already took place and you are trying to mitigate those, uh, those bad actors. Prevent is all about not even allowing the bad, the bad actors to, to come in. To give you an example, in a website, when you see a CAPTCHA, uh, where you need to, to answer uh, what do you see on this, on this image or something like that, that's the prevent stage. Uh, likewise, in a financial institution, you also have what's called the remediation stage. So imagine when you are not able to prevent fraud for some reason, then you need to somehow make the the customer good or you need to go after the, the bad guys, the criminals. That's the remediation phase. So really to become the de facto platform to manage risk, uh, you need to basically address all these needs. So what we are doing right now is to complement our product offering, developing products both for the prevent stage and the remediation stage and accelerating our international expansion. So today our main markets are basically the US and, uh, and Europe and uh, uh, we are getting good traction both on Asia Pacific and in Latin America but we want to develop those markets uh, a lot more because it's a huge opportunity worldwide and uh, we are here to to execute on that. What was your unfair advantage going in? Because like, if, if I understand this correctly, this is not like there, there's no IP or anything core that you sort of took from university where it's like this is something no one else can do. Was it just sort of the, the speed of execution being in the right spot at the right time? Or how let, would you say? Let me tell you a, a funny story. Um, so when I did my my degree, uh, I studied uh, computer science, but in particular, I studied artificial intelligence and machine learning. And in one of the courses, the course on, uh, on machine learning, all the books said that, oh, fraud prevention is the killer application for machine learning, and all the banks are applying this, and so on and so forth. This was in 1995. Imagine my surprise when we started to pitch this to financial institutions in, and banks in uh, 2014, 2015. And to my surprise, no one, absolutely no one was using machine learning and artificial intelligence for that. So imagine the books at the university and all the research is saying everyone is doing this in the industry. And uh, almost 20 years later, in the industry, you go and see, and no one is even applying that technology. As I said, all the requests for proposals, everyone, all the products were about rules. And we were deploying this amazing technology with machine learning and artificial intelligence to do this. And the, the results were simply astonishing. We were able to catch a lot, a lot more fraud with uh, much less false positives. So it was not even a, a fair fight against the, the competitors because the results were simply much better. Uh, nowadays, uh, a lot of competitors uh, are already deploying machine learning, uh, but even so, we, we still keep the, the leadership on, on that. So the problem was always there, but but no one had really like yeah. taken the and the, it into application. The opportunity was always there. the The textbooks at university were saying something that simply was not true regarding industry, and uh, and uh, we took the the opportunity and uh, and we found product market fit on doing that. Maybe it helps that none of the three of you like were were part of the banking system that you were like all like complete outsiders? Yeah, I think that helps a lot because 
I think people that actually disrupt the industry, being it uh, financial services, being it other industries, are typically outsiders, are people that are thinking a certain problem in a different way, either in terms of what the business is or what the, the customer need is or in terms of what the, the technology is. Typically, the disruption doesn't come from uh, within. Typically, it comes from someone that looks at a problem with uh, with a different angle or different eyes. So, absolutely. Um, so let, let's talk briefly about um, then Nuno and, and Pedro, the other two, two co-founders and you, because if I understand correctly, all three of you have a rather research heavy background. Was it like mm-hmm. obvious who was going to be who in the team? Like what roles, like how did that sort of come about and morph into, into the co-founding team? I, I think it was very obvious, even though at the time we were, to be honest, very naive, and we didn't really knew the exact terms to 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 call ourselves. At the same time, I think it was very very clear. So, Nuno, because of his personality and business orientation and so on, it was very clear that he would be the the CEO, and he loves uh, business and setting up teams and sales and uh, and that aspect of the business, which is essential. Uh, in my case, I I was always very connected to technology and to building products. Uh, I used to be the the director of the professional master in software engineering with Carnegie Mellon, uh, so I I was always very involved in uh, in building product and technology. Uh, so my my role became CTO and. Uh, Pedro Bizarro, my my third co-founder, he was always more science-oriented, I would say. He's the guy that always goes really, really deep in each one of the topics. And uh, we created a a structure that is not very usual uh, in companies. We actually have a pure research group inside of Fidzai, and Pedro became the, the chief science officer. And he, he is the one that leads research. Uh, the, the interesting thing about having a pure research group inside of Fidzai is that he has a very um, direct mission statement. So what he is doing is the following. If a company would start today, what would that company need to do to actually put us out of business? So his mission <laughs> is basically to put Fidzai out of business. Uh, so I would say that 80% of the, the things that his group is doing don't work, but the 20% that works, it's really amazing. And it's what we then uh, incorporate into the product. So while in product, I'm typically looking at one to two years ahead in terms of roadmap and what we need to do. Pedro is not concerned with the, with the next two years. He is looking at what can put us out of business in five years. And those things are the ones that then come to, to product and uh, clients end up uh, buying and, uh, and love. Very cool. Like how early did you set that up? Like how early on in the company? I think we were maybe 10, 15 people. And already the then you started thinking about like what could put us out of business. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we right from the, the Gecko, we, we did that. Again, having a, a research background, uh, I think, helped a lot in, in that process. How did your own role change? I mean, from sort of starting out... Uh, Basically, as a, as a researcher, still um, putting the technology into the first experiments. And now, I mean, I think you're 500 plus employees being yeah. a CTO. There is probably a different role to any of the ones you had experienced beforehand. So it completely changed because in the beginning, it's all about the technology and all the uh, the critical decisions that you need to make in terms of the product and to be honest in the beginning you need to deal to do a little bit of everything you are 
a software architect, you are a researcher, you are a product manager, which is a different, a completely different type of role. You are setting up customer support. You are, so you need to do a little bit of everything. And later on, what happens is that you know, you no longer have a single team. So the product becomes bigger. So uh, in a sense, you have different teams and there is a lot of focus on hiring the right people and create the culture and what are your values, what, what you believe it's critical and not critical and lead that by example. And, uh, and later on, it becomes even more... Uh, it's not more complicated, but different. You are looking at the long term, what type of products you need to invest in or not, what type of areas make sense or not. Uh, so I was giving you an example of, we need to look at the prevent stage and the uh, remediate stage. So those are things that take two, three, four, five years to build. And those are multi-million dollar type of decisions. So you are more concerned about how you you move the company from a certain type of player to, to a different type of player and what that means in terms of technology, in terms of product, in terms of structure, and not so much about the execution of individual teams or even the, the individual uh, areas within, uh, within product. And uh, I think that was the the most, uh, yeah. That's how the the role has changed. One one thing in that is very interesting in this in this process, and I've always said that to to the people that I promote and to the people that became the leads in each year is that the things that make you successful early on typically other are the things that can kill your career later on. So uh, there is this personality test called Meyer-Briggs where people are evaluated in terms of uh, different vectors in their personality. And one of the interesting things is that people that you normally promote have a, a personality that solves the problems that you have right now independently of the past and the future. And the... What happens is that this is very good in your career in the beginning. You get several promotions and it's even a a, a feed-forward type of process because you are being rewarded by that. But that can kill you later on because later on you need to think more about how the decisions are going to affect you one year down the line, two years down the line, and not so much about the pain that you are facing right now and the short-term decisions that you need to to take at that point. Uh, So it's very important as people progress in their careers to be aware of their own biases and uh, the things that made them successful because those things can can actually later on destroy a a career. How do you do things differently then at at Feedzai? In terms of helping your own employees, so so one one thing that we do is right since the beginning uh, we work a lot with people on career development. So we have weekly one on ones, which are not about the projects. They are not about uh, status meetings. These are really about career development, and we help people to be better at the job that they they do, and we explain. And we try to help them on understanding what they are doing well, not well, on how they are, uh, how they need to deal with certain challenges and how they evolve. To give you an example, imagine that you you have promoted an individual contributor to manager, and the guy is technically amazing, but he doesn't know the let's call it the operating system of people, right? So. Just with a little bit of training and a, a few discussions, you can uh, teach him uh, team dynamics. So teams go through different stages. So uh, there is a model called the Techman model where uh, teams are being formed, tips then are storming, norming, and then performing. And what you need to do as a team leader 
it's really, really different when you have a team that is performing, where you are mostly almost like a mentor for the team and the team is the one that is coming up with the, with the solutions compared to a, a team that is in the storming phase and everyone is fighting for their position and the objectives are not really clear and you need to be a lot more, uh, let's call it directive at that point. Uh, let me give you another example. Uh, people have, they don't know how to deal with uh, with um, confront or uh, let's call it dysfunctional behaviors in a team. But if you actually explain uh, to someone that you have promoted to, to team leader, what are the typical dysfunctions of a team and how you can actually address them and how you can mediate, the guy is going to do a much better job as compared to just trying to uh, find his way around. So it's a little bit like uh, what you do at university when you teach the technology, you are actually teaching the, the, let's say, the basics of each one of the areas. But when you start to manage teams and then departments and then areas, you also need to teach and to help people understand this human factor and these soft skills. And uh, we do that at all levels of the company. And I think it really helps out in, uh, in making uh, the team uh, a higher performance or performing team. It's really cool to hear. Um, and I'm just wondering, or probably the, the answer is obvious, because in the beginning you said you were always looking for something new, like you never wanted to stay somewhere for, for a long time now. You've been with, like, you've built Feedseye for 13 years. <laughs> Has there been enough variety? <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> every year, every year in a in a startup, especially high growth startup, it's it's a roller coaster, and to be honest, it's a completely different company every year because you need to move fast, you need to put a lot of things in in place very quickly. The departments need to evolve, and you end up doing many different roles, even when you don't actually have the the official title. So uh, imagine you need to be able to set customer support and you've never done that. And customer support doesn't have anything to do with uh, with product development. And uh, I think there is an equilibrium. Typically you do the function once. So you, you bootstrap it and so on. So you actually learn the basics but if you have the funds and if the company is really scaling, then you need to hire the best person that you are able to find in that in that area. But because you have done the function for a while, at least you are able to ask more interesting questions or intelligent questions compared to just uh, you need to set this up, let's find someone, and then you don't even know uh, what what to ask. And uh, and this applies to all areas, from the the financial area to the marketing area to the customer support to product development to product management. You you end up learning a lot of different things in a lot of different fields, even today. So so, so never boring. <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> no. <laughs> One thing I want to touch upon briefly is, is sort of your relationship with your university, because we already said like there's there's no IP you took, but it was still Pito and you. And I, as as far as I understand, most of both your research groups sort of ended up at the at the company after a while. Like how how's the relationship been with with the university from the from the start? Like how did you leave? How did you stay in touch? Um, so so in the beginning, uh, both me and Pedro we. We got a leave of absence, so the, the university was very accommodating in us actually experimenting uh, with this and trying this out. And I think it's because they understand this actually has an uh, amplification factor. So imagine that you build a, a successful company or a very successful company. You are going to hire a lot of students uh, from there. Uh, and that actually helps the department. You are going to have a lot of research proje projects with the university and the group. So that's also a, a uh, an amplification factor. 
uh, you end up actually giving back, and we have done that with the university also, both in terms of donations or uh, equipment or uh, different means. And again, that's a, a, an amplification factor. So, so in fact, if you look at the most successful universities worldwide, look at what happens at Stanford, look at what happens at MIT and so on, you have this amazing ecosystem of startups, in particular Silicon Valley and, and Stanford uh, and Berkeley. Uh, they have this amazing relationship where you have this uh, realimentation cycle where things become amplified. So the university was very welcome uh, on doing this. And uh, we were careful on always have uh, a continuous way of working with, uh, with the department and, and uh, make something out uh, of nothing in the sense of uh, projects that can benefit both parties. Super cool. And I mean, getting, getting a leave of absence also sounds like there was... There was not a lot of risk for you personally involved. It was sort of like you had your university had your back while you were trying to experiment with the technology. So, so that's also an amazing thing, which I believe a lot of uh, professors and researchers, both at universities, not only in in my alma mater, but also in other universities, could benefit from. Uh, but in general, people have these negative fantasies where they think, oh, I'm going to fail, or if this fails, it's going to be a nightmare and it's going to be horrible, and so on. While in reality, if you are a little bit more stoic, you can actually analyze what's what's the worst that, that can happen, right? Your reputation may, may be hurt a little bit, or... Uh, there is an opportunity cost because for two or three years you are not publishing and uh, you are not developing a group. But in the great of scheme of things, it can be really amazing. You learn a lot of different things. You interact with a lot of different people. Uh, and the things that you learn and the connections that you create, it can actually benefit your research and your teaching later on if you come back. So... If you have the inclination to create a, a company, and in particular a technology company, and if your university or research group actually gives you the, the ability to take a year off or a couple of years off, um, I think it's it's amazing. Just you should do it. What are you most proud of looking back at having built Feeds.ai to what it is today? I think what... What really makes me proud was to to build a, a product company out of Portugal, starting in Portugal, in Coimbra, to the world and becoming a, a worldwide leader in a, in a certain area. And more than that, what we are building, it's not just a, yet another website or yet another iPhone app. It's really something based on advanced technology, so machine learning and AI, and stream data processing. So it's not your traditional, uh, uh, let's say, small technology thing. It's really something for real. And and building a product company and a technology company uh, out of a good university, but not a, a worldwide non-university, it's something that makes me proud. Whenever I taught courses at university in the in the first day, I'd always take the the book that we were using for the course, and I would say to students, "Guys, what we are going to learn in this course, it's exactly the same thing that is taught at Carnegie Mellon, that is taught at MIT, that is taught in Stanford. What you do with knowledge, it's really what matters." And, uh, and being able then to, to go to the industry and prove that you can execute on knowledge, it really makes me, makes me proud. I just wish that 10 more feeds eyes, 20 more feeds eyes could emerge uh, in this way. There's a wonderful note, I think, 
to end on. And I'm, I'm sure your inspiration to the students at Coimbra and, and Portugal, seeing what you've built up over the past 10 years. It was a pleasure talking to you, Paulo. Thanks so much for your time. Likewise. This was great. Thank you. Thank you so much for the, the invitation. And good luck with Fizai over the next years. Thank you. <laughs>